1: As the holidays approach, you're probably goal-setting for 2022, and perhaps starting your own podcast is on that list. Over the last year or so, I've had friends, colleagues, and connections reach out to me about podcasting with questions around how to start a show, what tools I use for E2, how to tackle things like editing, production, distribution, and so much more. Look, starting a podcast really isn't complicated, so I created a step-by-step guide to show people how to do it. It's called The Pop-Up Podcast. It's designed to be a simple guide for professional podcast creation to help companies and creators like you start and scale a podcast in just a few weeks. We cover everything. So if you or your company is interested in launching a quality podcast, go to e2coursehub.com. That's e2coursehub.com. And we'll see you there. Hey, listeners, are you looking to monetize your craft? I know many of you out there are independent creators, publishers, educators, and of course, podcasters. If you're looking to monetize your passion, you have to check out memberful.com. Used by the biggest creators online, Memberful is providing best-in-class membership software for entrepreneurs and creators and has everything you need to run a successful and scalable membership program. In other words, Memberful allows you to build sustainable recurring revenue by selling memberships to your audience. You can send paid email newsletters directly through the platform, for example, without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can also publish your paid newsletter to a Memberful hosted members-only website, putting your brand front and center. And most importantly, you retain full control and ownership of your audience. Setup is super simple, so get started today at Memberful.com. That's Memberful.com and start earning. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's my chat with Jason Smith, co-founder and CEO of Clue, that's Clue with a K, a competitive intelligence platform that just announced its huge $62 million Series B raise led by Tiger Global with participation from Salesforce Ventures. In this episode, Jason and I dive into the recent funding announcement, of course, what lies ahead for the competitive intelligence space raising money during the pandemic and how it differs from the previous in-person fundraising circus, what metrics VCs look for in the Valley for any budding SaaS company, the American versus Canadian entrepreneurial mindset, taking a family gap year, and so much more. Jason has kind of seen it and done it all as a founder, so I hope you appreciate this one as much as I did. And with that, let's get to the show. Here's Jason Smith. let's dive in why don't we start with um the fundraising i mean it's huge news 62 million as you mentioned um huge praise validation in the category elite lead investor in tiger global uh, salesforce also involved what does it mean to clue and obviously what does it mean to you jason as the leader of this company
0: so i think any funding you need to take a moment to say why did you get the funding and i think there is a milestone that you reach in terms of company metrics i think there's validation of the category, as you said. And then there is the ability, the freedom to experiment on things that could give you 10, 100x return. So things that you couldn't risk before that might be a challenge from a, well, maybe even a bankruptcy standpoint, if you're doing it too early, now you can do let's hit APAC. Let's see what APAC will be like. Let's try this partnership channel. Let's see what that, let's try this new product category. Let's try an acquisition. There's a number of things that are on the table that you just can't do previously. So I think, you know, super excited about having the ability to kind of flex and experiment and really see how big this category could grow. The challenge and where it gets tricky is it seems like that's, The only thing that the press cares about if you're not AWS or, (laughs) or TikTok or any, you know, large kind of, you know, consumer, um, or not even consumer, just large companies. So that, that's why it gets a lot of attention and it's kind of the boom, uh, the, that you get press wise and people notice, but you know, the hundred features that we're going to ship in the next four weeks, no, nobody's going to want to write about that, talk about that yet. That's the stuff that moves the needle and we need to continue to focus on.
1: So. You guys raise a Series A uh, led by Craft Ventures back in September of 2020, right? Now you've got this $62 million raise. You add those numbers up. It's big numbers. But as we were talking earlier, you mentioned you still feel like we're in the first inning here. So uh, $80 million plus into this. Why do you say that?
0: Well, just in context of time, I mean, that's you're talking within a year, $80 million went in. So let's go back to the beginning of covid and there was, uh, what, three or four million dollars in and, you know, 30 people at the beginning of COVID and what looked like the sky falling and we would run out of money within by the end of the year. Mm. So just to put it in context, 30 people, three or four million in funding going bankrupt in eight months if we didn't, you know, find funding or find a way to control costs, looking at the biggest global kind of impactful event in in arguably history. So that was not that long ago. And now fast forward, and the balance sheet's a lot healthier. The economy is a lot healthier. The excitement around the, I don't even know if we could call it a rebound, you know, the momentary lapse in, in the stock market that just continued to accelerate after week two. I look at all those things now and, and uh, I think, okay, what this means is Uh, there's a lot of potential in tech. There's a lot of potential in categories that people might have thought are small that are a heck of a lot bigger. And I think there's a lot of VCs that have seen that from a vertical tech standpoint through to what arguably might have seen as a niche area in competitive intelligence, my area. I thought this might be a small company that I could self-fund in the very early days. And then as I peel back layers of the onion, I recognize that wait a minute, every company in the world has these things called competitors. Everybody wants to know about them, and there's no real system of record to kind of understand that. And as soon as you kind of, your head pops on that, you recognize, okay, well, what are all the facets that need to be done? And then you realize the breadth is large. That's when I sought uh, an investor that had funded Vision Critical previously, Omer's Ventures, and I think we were doing like 50K in ARR when they came in. That enabled us to get some resources. So we kind of came out of stealth really in 2017. Not really. I wouldn't call it stealth, but it was our first full year of charging with a real product was
1: 2017. The way that people have been gathering data, gathering insights on their competitors has been really clunky until now, really. And you guys are getting validation, not just from the fundraising side, you're getting validation from companies like Cisco, SAP, Shopify, that are all customers of yours. And they sort of describe this thing as like bringing a gun to a knife fight. Um, (laughs) That's high praise for what Clue is bringing to the table. So how do you explain the product? What does it do? How does it work? Yeah,
0: thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. I, I won't belabor it and turn it into a sales pitch. But I think what's interesting is companies have been flying blind. Like it's been best efforts to try and understand what your competitors are doing a salesperson would talk to a prospect, learn something about a competitor, you know, in the old days, drop it in email. Now it's dropped in Slack and it's awesome in that moment. And then it's, you know, past your screen and you forget about it. And so there's, there's all of these nuggets that flow in from your employees privately inside your systems. That is an interesting goldmine when you can ladder it together with all of the external stuff that exists on the web that your employees might not have found, whether that's a page change on your competitor's website, right? Like I thought that pricing plan was a little more expensive or less expensive, or I didn't realize they had this other tier or they included these features. And you're kind of scratching your head thinking, I I wish I took a screenshot of that. And so you need these, you need systems to be able to, you know, algorithmically do that. And then what happens is you just get so much damn data that it, it you need to curate it. And it's a human's job in the old world to do that. Now we can leverage ML to kind of make that assist happen. But you still need a human to kind of convert that raw intel that you find into actual insight, something, Adam, that you and I would want to pay attention to, or more importantly, say frontline salespeople that are in the moment they don't want to read a 17-page deck. They don't want a Word document and nine-point font and mice type, right? They they want a nugget that matters in that moment. So are they going to discount in Q4? They want to know the answer to that. What did they do in the last deal that looked like this in this media category with a similar size? And Jane and Bill over there, what did they do? You know, they, We want to pull that data together and kind of equip the organization with data they already have, insights they already have with the external insights packaged in a way that edges of the organization can leverage it. And I think when when you kind of get your head around that, you go, well, this, this sounds so damn obvious. It's like, let's put video on the internet. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But there's this dovetailing of trends that you need to do to make this happen. Like this couldn't happen without ML, right? You need machines. To, like we look at 3 million different data points a day. Mm. That is way too much for the human brain, humans to get through. You need a machine to go down and say, I think this is the hundred. And then let's take a human from there or the 10 let's aggregate that like, you know, this new podcasting thing that's come out and there's a feature review on G2. There's a note in Slack from your salespeople. There's a press release from the company. There's a page change on their site. And then there's some guy, you know, that, did this detailed blog post because they knew something about it that's, you know, not hitting the front page of a a highly trafficked site, but is super insightful. Um, So how do we pull all those together? Put that in front of a human that knows how to turn it into something contextually valuable.
1: Let's go back to the fundraising conversation just for one moment. Curious to know, uh, and I know a lot of listeners will be curious to know about your experience pitching to investors during a pandemic via Zoom, let's say, versus pitching to investors pre-pandemic and doing all of this in person. What was the process like for you? And what are the big differentiators, uh, perhaps the the not so obvious differentiators between those two processes?
0: It's a great question. I, I'll I'll bring everybody back in time. Um, there's a thing called COVID we're all familiar with. There was a moment in time when we were in denial on that. And it was probably timeline for North America, mostly like March 10th or so. That week of March 16th, was when each day felt like a month and it became real. March 16th was, I think the NBA shut down something around that. That was the day that it kind of got real Monday. The 16th was when it really felt real, I think for a lot of people. And by the end of that week, we were in like pandemonium, kind of, we've got to shut down Costco raids. That was the week that I said, okay, let's go raise money. And I literally kicked off a fundraise talking to people going, are you kidding me? I can't find toilet paper. I'm not even thinking about funding right now. It was the most counterintuitive way to go and think about raising money. But here was my theory is, I thought this was gonna be a massive recession, that this was going to really dramatically, negatively impact the funding environment. And I thought I needed to find some investors that were counter theorist on that. And would still be thinking about two weeks ago when it was heady days and maybe I can find some of those and I'll be one of the few people out there. So that was my theory. I went out and sure enough, that first and second week had all of the top tier VCs that I'd been warming up, who I'd met year before, talked to, they were interested, basically say, our, our pencils are down, we're not doing any funding, it's triage of our portfolio, And then sure enough, through more and more networking, you meet some that are like, we think this is a great opportunity to invest. Some of them were looking for value. They were looking for a discount. Luckily, we had three term sheets in a very short period of time. Our metrics were really good. So within six weeks, we had three term sheets. But it was odd for everybody. Zoom was not normal for VCs. It was much more normal to get on a plane, up and down, one-on-one talk to people in the Bay Area, talk to people in Palo Alto, be sat in a boardroom with a glass of water, wait for the partner to come in, some level of weird intimidation that would go with it all. <laughs> and now, and then it was Zoom. And guess what? Zoom is kind of the operator, the entrepreneur's environment. That's all we did all day long. And so suddenly we have our background set up. We don't have like kids running around <laughs> like we're organized. We know the mic is on or off and literally kind of helping some cases of VCs go, yeah, yeah, no, I can see you. I can see you. Yeah, I can see everything in the background too. And is that, wow, that's your laundry. Oh, that's your kid there. That's interesting. And it just humanized this process of um, arguably, in the past, it was inequality. It was just a human leveler on the fundraising side. So it actually turned out to be wonderful and unbelievably efficient and then people realized that they could invest without seeing somebody in the eye physically. Digitally was enough. They can still do the same back channels. They could still do all the same things of feeling the energy of a, an entrepreneur. They could see all the metrics. That was easy. And so people that were cautious in the early days like, started to accelerate. So we got in and we were one of the first. We actually closed our deal in June. We just waited to September to announce it. And, uh, we had term sheets like in April. So, you know, very soon after we kicked off. So that was like, that was the beginning of it. And then it became de rigueur. like now, like for this round, there was no travel, there was no meeting anybody physically. It was all on zoom meetings were even more efficient and it was, uh, you know, crisp. In fact, Maybe the difference between an A round and a B round though is even more important are your metrics. Like it's pretty clear if you're on a track or not, there's in the SaaS world, you're, you're in these zones of this is the type of company that they're interested in speaking to or not. And then from that point, it's like, how do they feel the category? How big is it going to be? How do they feel like the team is? And you can do all that on zoom. So I think it's completely changed the game for fundraising forever.
1: Speaking of categories, you know, Kraft Ventures cites in their Medium post that they release as to why they actually invested in Clue, uh, the top three reasons. Number one being that they love category-defining SaaS businesses. What are the metrics that these um, investors are interested in and, and why were these three metrics so good in the beginning for you guys? So the, the number one thing is growth.
0: Number one. So from a SaaS standpoint, it's how quickly is your ARR growing or your MRR? Um, but if you look at an ARR basis, like you, if you're sub 10 million in ARR, they're looking for companies growing at 3X year over year, sub 10 million. Maybe after 10 million, it's it's two and a half, but they're you're looking for at least that as kind of the qualifier for top tier BCS. And just Adam, let's be clear. There is a ton of money out there. And I know that sounds weird talking to entrepreneurs that are like, well, where's my money? <laughs> it's it's still hard to raise. They're out there, just keep knocking. And the there's this wide uh, gamut of top tier all the way through to family offices that never would have considered venture that are now looking for direct deals mm. that you've never heard of. So um, it's not just the Crafts and the Sequoias and the Andresans anymore, the Tigers, it's like, you know, n- no name family that you ever, never heard of that made their money in automotive that has some guy looking for venture deals. So like it's out there in a way that it never was, but growth is for the big guys, hundred, well, it's everybody, but certainly for the top tier, hyper growth is what they look for. Number one, number two, they look for net revenue retention And arguably gross revenue retention. So uh, net revenue, thinking about if I didn't sell another thing, how quickly would I be growing? And so would you be growing at 20% a year, 30% a year in a lot of SaaS companies? If you didn't sell another thing, you could still be growing at 20 and 30% a year because your existing clients are buying more. Mm -hmm. That's net revenue retention. And it's, you know, if you're an enterprise uh, mid-market, you want 120% plus. You know, gross retention is really just about your number of um, clients and sometimes net revenue. You can get a lot of money from a handful of clients that are growing, but a bunch of others aren't. So, you know, how many clients are sticking with you, you know, your churn rate? Sales efficiency, like how how expensive is it for you to get clients? Certainly in Canada, we're actually, we're really good typically on sales efficiency. That was a big advantage for us going and speaking with Bay Area firms. Like for every dollar that we would get an ARR, you know, it would cost us 50 cents to go get that. And, you know, something like that was a very good metric. So they were like, well, we're happy with a one-to-one because we expect your ARR to last beyond a year. And so, you know, there's a massive multiple. If it costs you a buck to get it and it sticks around for five years, and that's five bucks, like you, you want to do that all day long. So we were ultra-efficient on ours. And so they looked to pour money into companies that are ultra-efficient in that so that they can accelerate and own the market. Um, basics, though, like you've got to be like some people think they're a SaaS company, and you're looking at 80% gross margin to be thinking about being a SaaS company. And so there's a lot of companies that will add services or have a very high cost of goods mm-hmm. that, because of whatever their licensing or whatever else, to kind of make sure that they can offer what they're offering, their gross margins are in the 60s, and uh, a lot of these top tier um, investors aren't looking for that, so. Happy for short-term impacts on gross margin, like if you have to hire some services to juice something for a while, but if you get addicted to that and your margins stay and hover in the 50s or 60s, it's hard to be seen as a SaaS company.
1: Looking past over your 20-year-plus career uh, and this most recent fundraising experience with some of these big names that you mentioned, Craft, Tiger, Salesforce, how does this experience differ from previous experiences raising money and how important is your venture partner? Important for your
0: listeners to know that I've done it all. From like graduating university, bootstrap, you know, everybody put, I think, five grand in a pot. We bought a bunch of Macs and away we went. And that um, was a full bootstrap, you know, company to 100 people and exited there. No venture money, gritty, just trying to grind it because we were young. Nobody trusted us. Nobody would give us money. And like I would have given us money back then. So there's... You know, the bootstrap experience that I've had, I've had two failures, you know, connected with uh, one was, you know, here in Vancouver. Um, The other was in the Bay Area with a bunch of Harvard MBAs that were super well connected, you know, into the Harvard mafia was super exciting and it didn't work. And so, you know, one with no pedigree, one with a lot of pedigree, those didn't work. Lots of learning. The one that I did previous to this, we were slow on getting venture. So that was vision critical now called Alita. Uh, there was a point in 2008, I think it was, that uh, Qualtrics, our biggest competitor, took 70 million dollars, I think, from Sequoia, and we used the approach of let's be more capital efficient. Let's just let's just not take a whole bunch of money and dilute ourselves. And what were two equal companies now? Qualtrics is worth 25 billion as a public company. Vision Critical is not. It's not even a fraction of that. And so there's a point where you're building categories where money matters. There's a point where you're equal or just ahead or just behind your competitor where money really makes a difference. And so when I went into this, when the Clue experience, it was that vision critical exposure of not taking aggressive funding to really put ourselves ahead of the competitors that I've had clearly in my head. And so there's a certain level of mattress you need to get to and when you get there, I wanted to put the hammer down. And that was why we started talking to investors about our B round. This summer um, we, had, we had, you're at the point where people are starting to hear about your company, clients are talking about it. So we had, we were lucky. We had 52 inbounds of, of investors looking to speak with us that we narrowed the list down and, and Tiger was just so fast and so aggressive and so easy to deal with that we ended up uh, choosing to work with them and they are category builders as well. Like they were speaking our language. We will want to outright own the category, not just win it, but like add everybody else up in the category and they still won't equal our share. That's the kind of mindset that we're trying to bring in, a very aggressive mindset. Um, I don't know if most of your listeners are Canadian, but I often talk to Canadian entrepreneurs and I'm like, we got to bring the American out in us. And, uh, and that that's the mindset that I was trying to bring into this one and and really go for it. And if it doesn't work, well, we'll have given it a huge shot.
1: Mm -hmm. How do you define that Canadian mindset versus uh, an American one? Or should I say, how do you, how do you explain that bringing that American mindset over to Canadian founders?
0: let me let me also say the gap is narrowed significantly but there certainly was in my earlier career of a reverence a bit of an awe of like well i don't know if we can do that here in canada i was really excited in my first company to get like ontario hydro or bc hydro as a client when i i should have been thinking about getting verizon or vodafone and globally owning right so there's it starts from your sphere of what you think you could do and what really helps is getting exposure to others around you, Canadians that have done it. It's role modeling. You get you talk to these folks and you think they're not that smart. They're not that much better than I am. I could be, I could do that. And it gives you this jolt of maybe you can. And then you put your hammer down and you you see a bit of success there and away you go. So to me, it is just about you're gonna spend the same 10, 12 hours a day doing something. Why not go big? Why not go for it? It's the same amount of time as you're going to invest. Don't go in small and play it safe. Like, why not go for it? That's been my theory with this one. Hasn't been my theory on all my companies. For this one, it has. So that American mindset that I always refer to is just, that's how they think from day one. Like, yeah, it's going to be me. Yeah, I'm going to be the biggest one. I, yeah, I'm going public. I know there's only three of us in an office right now, but we're going to be massive. And I think as Canadians, we have this sense of like, well, there's only three of us in an office. Uh, I I don't know where this is going to mm. go, and and we're we're there's a level of humility that we have that is natural. We're built into story sayers, and so I just I I I really wanted to when I talk to fellow entrepreneurs, we try and shake ourselves into like, why not us? Let's own this thing. Canada can win too.
1: Along those lines, uh, I just want to read a quote here. You mentioned the word humility. So, uh, straight from this craft ventures post about why they invested in Clue, quote: Jason Smith is the kind of leader people are drawn to. He combines confidence and decisiveness of a serial entrepreneur, which he is, with Canadian humility and authenticity. So there you go. We we want to combine the two.
0: I hundred percent agree. We can be those ducks with our feet swimming under the water without having to you know show everybody that we're cranking, but. We just wanted that mindset of winning and we can do it humbly.
1: So um, I put a pin in something, um, the vision critical experience, which was 2004 through 2011. Um, you were the president there. I don't think you were a co-founder. Were you a co-founder?
0: No, I wasn't. I was brought in when there were eight people.
1: Okay. And you grow the company, obviously. You spend seven years there. You have this previous background as a, as a co-founder, having some success and some failures, as you mentioned And then you dive in as president. How do you distinguish between the two roles? Like, what's the difference between a sort of hired gun president versus a a co-founder CEO?
0: So I'd done three companies before joining Vision Critical. Vision Critical was my fourth. At that point, I thought, I must not know something. I keep doing it myself. Some work, some don't. I, I I should go learn from somebody that's been there, done that. So why don't I try that? And Angus uh, Reed had sold his company for 100 million dollars and I thought I I could learn from this guy. Let's let's try that. So that was the initial theory and I had a couple criteria. I wanted to understand the product. I liked the idea of understanding how consumers thought moving it online and happened to be Vancouver based and you had this guy Angus Reed that a lot of Canadians knew and I thought I could learn something from him. So that was kind of the humble entry point in and then any job I go into, I think not only for myself, but everybody should treat it like you're the owner. Everybody should think like a founder. You're unleashed from the the political and ego driven, this is my job, I don't want to lose it. And you start to approach everything from how, how can we elevate this thing? And you, the minute you start to think like an owner, I just think it it, it makes things a lot more clear. On Well, this needs to be done and you advocate for what needs to be done instead of being apathetic because it's not your job and you think about driving it forward. So when I entered Vision Critical with eight people, I sat across from Andrew and Angus, so father and son, who were really the founders and um, and talked to them about what the vision was for the future. And they wanted to build a technology company at the time and said, uh, we want to bring you in to participate in that. So it was easy to come in at an eight-person company and think like a founder and really help to try and build it as a founder. And because Angus had made his money in the services world, not the technology world, I thought, okay, I'm I'm a very good compliment. I'm a very good product tech guy compliment to his services mindset. Yeah, when I left it, it was 500 people and probably on the SaaS side, more like a 50 million revenue business. And uh, it was was going pretty well. It was considered a Canadian success. But again, when I compared to Qualtrics, I'm like, we could have done more. And so there's certain points in a company's history where you question whether it's the right strategy, whether it's something that you've built technology-wise, whether it's more services or less product, or taking more or less funding. And I think we made a couple choices there that probably slowed us down and that enabled our competitor to accelerate and they became the line share winner
1: and one morning you wake up and at 40 years old you quit your job uh, i'm going to try and just go through your thinking process here you wake up uh you quit your job at vision critical you leave your seven year role as president there you rent your house out in vancouver pull your kids out of school and you take off so what was that experience like and what was going through your head? So, uh, yeah. yeah, it sounds odd when you talk
0: about it like that, but it was, you know, there's a moment as you kind of evolve um, in your company that you think, for me, it was, I wanted to start another company, but I, I had missed, I mean, when we started Vision Critical. I had two kids under two. And by the time I looked up, you know, those kids are eight and nine. And I had missed a lot of bed tuck-ins. I had missed a lot of connections with those kids and I'm a very binary, all in, all out guy. And so the only way I could see making it happen was to outright quit and fully immerse myself with my family for a full year. So thank financially we could we could afford renting your house remarkably actually pays for a lot of uh, a lot of what you need on a monthly basis when you're I'll call it traveling not vacationing you know you're not staying at fancy places Certainly in Vancouver um, that,
1: that that's probably true
0: That's <laughs> and Toronto So it it yeah it was a life-changing experience foundation building with your, with your kids. And what I'd say is 40 is no magic number, but it's certainly a point where you look forward and you look backwards and you say, have I accomplished everything I want to accomplish? Am I doing what I want to do? And um, I knew that vision critical, I was not going to run the show there. I was always going to be a number two. And I wanted to. I wanted my shot to run my own thing eventually. So leaving and then having a foundational connection here with the kids was amazing, 13 different countries, you know, suddenly um, you're with your family 24 seven from traveling and not seeing them a whole lot to every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner, every experience you are together the whole time. That was an adjustment in the beginning. Certainly my wife was like, who, who's this guy now showing up (laughs) thinking he's going to be like an equal parent. And uh, we had, we had lots of adjustment, but um, foundational connection. We still talk about camels coming out of Wadi Rum or floating in the Dead Sea or, you know, tarantulas in the Peruvian jungle. It's um, it's, it's a real connective experience.
1: So your girls now, I would imagine, are off to university or, or pretty close to it.
0: Weirdly. Yes. I'm like, uh, my wife and I just became empty nesters. We didn't expect it, but suddenly both our kids are gone and out of the house. So yeah, I have to talk about have to talk about those trip experiences even more to maintain the connection.
1: I would imagine they have such fond memories of that whole experience. Do they still talk about it? It comes up in the most random of ways. Mm. Like,
0: remember when mom lost it, when we had this thing? Remember when dad had to go and, you know, go for a run to let off steam or... <laughs> Remember when we, you know, ran to get the Tatak Museum because we didn't get our homework finished in time and we had half an hour to see this, you know, famous museum in Turkey. And yeah, there's just, and it's, it's actually some of the most random stuff. Like one time in Turkey, we came into this place where this guy's showing this, oh, this beautiful room that we're in and it's looking fantastic. And the price was low and we're scratching our head. Why is it so low? But this is, I don't know, maybe, maybe they like this Canadian family traveling and we moved in. And within like 10 minutes of setting our bag down, we realized that, you know, behind us was the train track. And so like these <laughs> subway and um, and trains would go by us nonstop. So it was one heck of a sleep, inexpensive, but one heck of a sleep that night. Those are the things that kind of come forward and you remember, it's always the odd thing. So actually a very key learning that I had out of life was anytime you have those things that are off the rail, not normal, lean into them whatever they are, whether it's, you know, you're stuck. I had a friend stuck between two landslides in, uh, just outside of hope in BC through all the rain issues, whether it's a, a tire that you had to change on the side of the road with your kids in the car. Those are all the ones that people remember. They don't remember the regular trips. They remember the odd things. So lean into those when they happen.
1: And not enough people do that. Certainly not uh, at 40 with two kids. So kudos to you for doing it. Um, listeners that want to get a taste of this trip can do by going onto YouTube and just searching for travel around the world with kids, colon, a family gap year. So you're an all in guy. So do you feel like you were recharged? You come back, uh, you do a couple of advisory gigs, you start searching for what's next. And did you feel a calling back to an operator seat?
0: I've always been an operator at my core. I've always preferred the gritty gray to the clear black and white structure. I've always liked surrounding myself with people that wanted to iterate and figure things out. So um, I knew I also wanted to build a culture that was uh, something that I wanted to work in that I thought others wanted to work in and be unencumbered with a vision of being able to execute around that. So I knew I wanted to do it. It was just what, you know, there's a lot of people that I think that want to be entrepreneurs and you, you've got to find the right idea. And so I didn't want to rush that. So I came back and you're right, fully recharged, like fully ready to now invest the next decade into cranking on something. But then the question was what I had 17 different ideas that I had jotted down. Every time I had an idea on the trip from a past experience and or current one where I was traveling, I would jot it down and then I would close the book and get back to the experience with my family. So when I got home, I opened that book and I looked at all 17 of those ideas and thought they were all smart at the time. Definitely a lot of dumb ideas, 12 of them right off the bat. And then five, you're kind of juggling. And then you kind of go through. And I, I have this process by which I think of establishing a company. And the first one is, it, it's like a hundred smart person coffee meetings is how I judge it. It's You need to sit across from somebody and say, this is what I'm thinking about. I I love your input, but I want really honest, hard input. Like, I don't, I don't want you to say it's great because there's nothing in it for them to say that's a really dumb idea other than them looking like an ass. So like you need to tell them, can you tell me my haircut's really bad? Like, I need you to tell me this. Like I, you have to start the combo with that and then they'll get into it and they'll give you some honest feedback. And I find at the end of those conversations, you're either going to lean further into the idea, or you're going to walk further away from it. And over a course of a hundred of those smart ones, where they really beat you up on it, you end up with conviction on the direction that you want to take and a deeper investigation that you would have, wouldn't have done otherwise. You've been challenged to go deeper. And I found at the end of that, I'm like, okay, this is this is what I want to do. This is it. There's validity here beyond the surface. So, do you feel like you guys were
1: the first mover in the category?
0: No, there were plenty of, uh, competitive intelligence conceptually is a very old category. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people have done things, but it's largely been backroom and kind of research focused, like custom research services focused, where at most it was like a Google alert repository of information that wasn't actionable. It was more like a, a lookup database. And so we were first to kind of tie together internal data with external data and collect that the first to tie ML with um, humans on the curation side and the first to connect that with how you're going to present it and how you're going to distribute it to people, like inside of other tools or directly, uh, you know, in an email or in Slack or in their browser or through Clue. So that collection, curation, consumption thing was, was unique. But competitive intelligence, yeah, it's been around forever. It was just trying to put it on Rails
1: Um, And you've noted in the past that you feel like the success to any startup is that is the actual product itself. Um, So you must've been thinking about not only the category, but how are you going to productize this thing?
0: My co-founder is the technical one. I'm more of the business one. Great compliment that, by the way, that's the next step is finding your co-founder, whether it's somebody you worked with or not trust is paramount in that. So that was after kind of the hundred meeting test Finding, well, through that process, you're looking for your co founder and you really, more than anything else, the complementary skill set and do you trust one another? I actually had a stop start with a previous co founder that ultimately I felt like there was a judgment call that I just went, oh, I'm going to second guess everything now. And so you trust Paramount there. So just wanted to start with that. And then Then you're building the product and it's very easy to go into this feature is going to fix everything. This next feature is going to fix everything. We had a beers and bash every Friday. We'd invite people in that we thought were our intended customer profile and say, what do you think of this? Like play around with it. And uh, we'd watch them and we'd cajole them and we'd listen to them and we'd beer and bash it. And uh, we did this every Friday with enough local people and some of them were repeat and uh, out of that, we'd end up with another list of 50 features that we needed to build. And so prioritization of those features was always a challenge. Stepping back and saying, you know, is it another feature or something we built was wrong and it didn't, it needs to be a, a smooth workflow. But that's just the classic gritty get at it, iterate, get feedback, get iterate again, more feedback process where you just don't have enough data to know whether or not you're in the right world. So you, you just got to get more data. You got to get more data points. You got to ask people what they pay for it. You got to see if they'll get in there. They bail out of it. Why is that? It's just, that's the gritty process that there's just no shortcutting it. The only thing I'd say is just watch the the next feature will save everything mindset. I, I, I'm hundred percent like that. I'm like, oh, we just had this feature and it's so easy to get there. Often what I realized is marketing and explaining it is as big an issue as the feature itself. How do you get people thinking about it in advance and they're mentally prepped for it? You kind of precede them with what they're gonna do and then you walk them through in a very simple way. And then if they're in trouble, that's when you kind of come to the rescue on things. And so there's a whole marketing and service component there that I think is at least equal to the product and something I didn't give enough credit to in my early days.
1: How good do you think the product is right now? And as you you bring on this additional funding, how do you balance the allocation of funding toward the product versus, say, building the team versus marketing, sales, et cetera?
0: Yeah, it's always difficult. It's as if you've got 100 marbles and you've got to decide which departments get how many marbles. And if you tell every department to roll in and pick the marbles they need, you're going to need 500 marbles and you've got 100. So there's this moment of even with a lot of money now coming in of in a land of plenty, you're still gotta divide up the pie. And I think it's, there's, it's not a perfect answer, but there's different stages in your company where when you have a go-to-market motion that's working, you're gonna just keep tripling down on that and see how far it can take it. So in our case, we've got a lot of, uh, we're inside sales. Like we've never met our clients in person, but we do speak to them on Zoom and we, whether cold email or cold call in, we try and get their attention advertising. And then we demo them and onboard them with a more white glove way than a traditional PLG, a product like growth kind of company would be. We got that motion working. And so I don't know if we throw 400 people on that, where, where's where's the cliff? I, I don't know. Do they fall over themselves with 20 people or is it you could get that to 100? I think for go-to-market, you just keep throwing money at it while you're efficiently adding revenue and see how far you can take your existing working process. And when you reach that law of diminishing returns, you try something new. Okay. Now we're going to shift into Instagram ads because cold calling doesn't work or, and it's, it's never one thing, but you kind of macro it on the product side. Uh, I believe now clues moment to really accelerate the machine learning and have this thing do more automated insight generation is, is going to be the ticket and those people are expensive. Um, you don't buy factories, you buy smart people and they have to come up with those solutions. So we're going to invest a lot of money on the product. I'd say at least 50% of this funding is going to go towards the product and ensuring that we have something that our competitors just can't keep up with.
1: If you can share, how do you look at your positioning, uh, relative to competitors and who are your top, say three competitors in, in the category? Um,
0: so, you know, Adam, we're the best here. Come on. I mean, there's, uh, there's nobody else. Oh, well, we're Canadian. Yeah. No,
1: I- <laughs> so, so we're the best.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, we have, I would say in our case, we really have one competitor based out of Boston. And it's the two of us that are really creating a category. Um, there's lots of other players. Lots. But really, I would say it's two of us. And there's a lot of other categories that were so Uber and Lyft, you know, were two companies that really created that ride hailing. Gong and Course were two companies that really created the call recording. Many, many others in the space, but there are really two that started to build the category. So first I'll say I'm really thankful for having a strong competitor because without it, you, you can't build a market. You can't be the only one. You want competitors. So we have lots of them. We just happen to have one that it is um, a fistfight. We tend to be a little stronger on the enterprise. They tend to be a little stronger on SMB. And we do get out in the mid-market. So the funding is hopefully uh, there so that we can outpace them by a 10x magnitude um, over the course of the next 24 months.
1: Well, wishing you guys uh, the safest of knife fights uh, as you duke it out, um, <laughs> over the next chapter. So clue.com for more information on clue. That's K L U E competitive enablement that wins business. Uh, Jason, unbelievable to have you on today. Thank you so much for sharing. Where else can people connect with you? Follow you. See what you're up to on Twitter.
0: I'm at Jason S and LinkedIn. I'm slash one more Smith O N E M O R E S M I T H, where you could look up uh, search for Jason Smith
1: clue. Appreciate you coming on today. And to listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash e2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electricast. Electric Ast-
0: hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electricast
1: Records. And always remember, be love. Share love. All love.
0: Available now wherever you
1: listen to music.